So we sitting here looking at this dope ass Black Panther poster. And the conclusion that we have all come to is that this is what white people get to feel all the time. All the time! All the time! Since the beginning of cinema. All the time! You get to feel empowered this. like this and represented. This? This is what y'all feel like all the time? I would love this country too. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is a cat that won't cop out when there's danger all about, <laughs> my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On this week's episode, Nakia and I are switching seats, and she's picking a classic movie that I have somehow never seen, Gordon Park's 1971 black exploitation classic, Shaft. But first, we're going to have a spoiler-free discussion about a new movie. Ryan Coogler's Black Panther, which opened this weekend. Nakia, you, the unenthusiastic critic, have been ridiculously <laughs> enthusiastic about this movie ever since it was announced. Yeah, it's basically been getting me through probably since Trump was elected. I, when was it? I don't even remember when it was announced. I don't but know, but it's it's been my lifeboat. I remember while. it was like a year and a half. Yeah, it's, at it's least that you have been looking forward to Black Panther. Pretty much every time I said, "Hey, let's go see a movie." You said... I'm not seeing anything until Black Panther. <laughs> there are no movies other than Black I Panther. I need there not to be nuclear war until after Black Panther. That's kind of been my, my level of excitement. Well, you are not alone in that. Uh, we are recording this on the Sunday. Uh, Black Panther opened on Thursday. So far, it has made upwards of $200 million domestic box office, upwards of $350 million worldwide. Look at that. Black people sell overseas. <laughs> According to BoxOfficeMojo.com, it's currently the fifth best opening weekend of all time, beating every Marvel movie except The Avengers, and it, it may be on pace to beat The Avengers, depending what? what it does today. Uh, in terms of reference, that is twice what Wonder Woman made in its opening weekend wow. and more than Justice League made in its entire run. It has shattered records for a winter release. Most big movies are released in summertime. It is number one all time for a winter release. Nice. Uh, it is a critical hit, currently boasting a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. It has mostly been getting love letters from all of the critics. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that this has been a success. Which I actually wasn't worried about. There was a lot of sort of chatter about, oh, goodness, what if it's bad? Like, even you said, what if it's terrible? And I was just... Well, I was expecting it to be good, but I always go into these things. I did the same thing with Wonder Woman. It's like going into it feeling like, this needs to be good. Please be good. Because everybody's circling. Right. You know, everybody's... They're waiting for it to... The alt-right. Right. And everybody is out there waiting for it to be bad. Right. And studios are looking for it Waiting for it to, to say it's a failure. Things, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, we, we have both seen it twice at this point already. <laughs> but the first viewing, yeah, I just sat there nervous thinking, please be good. Please be good. Please See, be good. See, I was good. like, it's Ryan Coogler... It's Angela Bassett. It's Forrest Whitaker. It's Lupita. It's so I was just kind of like I actually feel 
good going into it. I wasn't worried about the quality. I was pretty confident about the fact that it was just going to be amazing. The first viewing, I sat there just saying, oh, my God, look at their skin. Oh, mm. my God, look at the hair. Oh, my God, look at the costuming. And then the second viewing was like, okay, sit down and actually pay attention <laughs> to the movie and stop just, you know, basking in the beauty of it. So we thought, given the magnitude of the occasion, we would have, uh, we're going to keep this spoiler free. We're not going to get into plot points, but let's let's talk about Black Panther. Nakia, what did you think? It's the best movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I mean, I really don't have any complaints about this movie. I really don't. I just, and it's, I'm totally just going to fangirl about it. And there are probably, you know, some critical arguments people will make about various, you know, aspects of it. But I was just totally in love with it pretty much from start to finish. I don't know that I've ever wanted to sort of live inside a movie, mm-hmm. specifically Wakanda, as much as I have with, with Black Panther. I'm, I'm just, it's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, I expressed, I love the movie too. I expressed very mild criticisms of and it. And I almost kicked him and in the I, face. Yeah, I felt like that was <laughs> just not, not something that it was safe to do around you, quite frankly. Not opening weekend. You save that shit for later. Right now, it's amazing. It's the best thing that's ever been put to celluloid. Full stop. That's it. That is it. That's all that needs to be said. You know, Ryan Coogler has shown... Immense talent with Fruitvale, which, you know, broke my heart. Mm-hmm. And it breaks my heart every time I watch it. And with Creed, which I wasn't, I didn't go into expecting to really love because I didn't have any sort of connection with Rocky. Right. So I went into that just kind of off, basically off of Ryan Coogler. And again, it was amazing. I think I actually had to talk to you when you did. that one. You did. Um, we went to see it in theaters and I was so happy that I saw it. And, um, and that was probably my first real introduction to Michael B. Jordan, and that mm. was a revelation. Um, what a fucking career that guy has had. Yeah. Well, Going back the com- to The Wire yeah. and Friday Night Lights. And, and yeah. I'm just excited about whatever he and Ryan Coogler do together moving forward. I'm just totally on board mm. because I think they are a really great partnership. But yeah, so, I mean, you know, Ryan Coogler's a 31-year-old director, and he has three really amazing films under his belt. So that's that's pretty impressive. And then beyond that, it it can't go without saying the sort of the people that were on his team in terms of, you know, the, the filmmaking. So you had Ruthie Carter, who was mm-hmm. in charge of the costume design. And I just. Yeah, let's let's talk about that resume. Ruth Carter, the costume designer. She's one of Spike Lee's frequent collaborators. Mm-hmm. So she did School Days, Do the Right Thing, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X. She was also the costume designer on Love and Basketball, Black Dynamite, Selma, Chirac, uh, the Roots remake mm-hmm. from a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty amazing resume. It really is. Um, she was nominated for an Academy Award in costume design for both Malcolm X and Amistad. And if she does not actually, if she does not win <laughs> the next Oscar for costume design, is a fucking crime. I, I, I need to prepare you now that no, movies like this do not win ca- a lot of I don't os- understand. A lot of Oscars of any but kind. But costume design? Wonder that's... Woman was completely shut out of the Oscars this year. I But I, I really don't understand how Ruthie Carter does not win an Oscar for costume design. Okay. Is. I mean, I, at the very le- the work that she put into in terms of the research and the, the referencing for for building the costumes of this this film, this really kind of beautiful and seamless sort of integration of both the traditional and historic with the sort of kind of Afrofuturistic aesthetic is just 
amazing to look at. And then when you look at the sort of breadth of what she pulled from, so, you know, from Ethiopia to, you know, Zulu tribes to Wakabi wears Basotho blankets that comes from Lesotho, references to uh, the Himba people of Namibia who were known to wear sort of red paste in their hair and on their skin. Um, T'Challa wears kente cloth on one of his robes towards the end of the film. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing display of the sort of diversity represented on the continent. And then, so then you have Hannah Beachler, who was in production design. And again, it just, she did it, her and her team did an amazing job of just creating a world that felt very authentic and very lived in. And again, you get this sort of through line of nature and history tied with technology and futuristic elements. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was so beautiful. I mean, I can't wait for the DVD to come out because there are some scenes that I just kind of want to pause and sit in for a minute. Mm -hmm. One of them being, you know, the first scene when they're coming into Wakanda and you get the big overview of the city. I just kind of want to sit in that scene for a little bit and just look very at the buildings and look at the streets and try to, you know... Or um, there's a scene where the tribes are going to the coronation of T'Challa, where you see Shuri and Queen Ramonda dancing on the barge, and they're in their sort of full regalia. And it's just, again, I just want to pause that scene and just stay there for a while. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's just, it's fascinating. Uh, You were talking about the crew that he had on this. I also wanted to to call out uh, Rachel Morrison, who was the cinematographer on this. Mm -hmm. She worked with Kugler on Fruitvale Station, and she's also Oscar-nominated this year, the first woman ever nominated in that category for Mudbound, which which you and I both loved. And the cinematography is fantastic in Black Panther, and it is so far above the average Marvel movie. Mm -hmm. The use of color is unbelievable and used very smartly. Like, I think when we came out, you pointed out the difference between just the color grading on the scenes that take place in Wakanda versus the scenes that take place in London. Right. No, it's really... And again, that just contributes to the whole idea of this being a very sort of realized world and pulling, again, from sort of influences of after there are lots of reds and lots of greens. And it's a stunning, stunning, stunning film to look at. But there is there's this one where you start in Wakanda and then there's a quick cut and we're in London and it's gr- these kind of gray and blue shading. That's actually pretty typical of yeah. Marvel films. Right. And it just goes, oh, <laughs> it's like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> and that's the scene where the two white characters are talking to each other. <laughs> As they call themselves the Tolkien white boys. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I want to go back to Wakanda. I want to go back to the color and the warmth and the, yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's beautiful. So one other piece just in terms of the aesthetics is um, the ridiculously wonderful work that Camille Friend and her team did in terms of hair design. Again, just the diversity of the looks and again, the sort of reflection of both the traditional and modern styling. It's just, it's wonderfully, wonderfully well done. And the sort of novelty of seeing, you know, Black people, Black women specifically, celebrating all that, you know, natural hair can do was just personally just an amazing thing to see. And I mean, from top to toe, this team just nailed it. It was just amazingly well done. Okay, so we've we've established that you would like to move to Wakanda. I would really like to move to Wakanda. <laughs> do we do we want within a spoiler-free parameter to talk about the story a little bit and the themes a little bit? 
Okay, sure. I mean, I I think the easy thing for Kugler to have done was to make this a film in which in which the villains were like white colonizers, mm-hmm. right? You have like an invasion of Wakanda story. And who knows? We may get that in Black Panther 2, mm-hmm. which at this point, I think we can feel safe to say there, there will be a Black, be a Black Panther 2. Yeah. Um, but I really liked he did something much more subtle and much smarter with this movie. And I mean, yes, white colonization is presented as an evil. That's kind of a given. But... What he's exploring in this is something different. He's he's exploring sort of ideological differences within the black community. He's weaving into this very effective superhero action film all these questions about foreign policy, the responsibilities of power and privilege, isolationism versus interventionalism, pacifism versus militarism, issues of black identity, issues of black masculinity. It's really very rich and resonant while still managing to be a kick-ass action movie. That's that's what I found most impressive about it. Yeah, I mean, those. it is definitely a thematically rich film, and it feels relevant to the times uh, in which we live. It feels relevant to conversations that have been happening in the Black community for a very long time. So you take this sort of fictionalized place... And it becomes a question of, you know, what does Wakanda owe to the sort of larger diaspora? Mm -hmm. Um, And what is the connection that black people in America have with an Africa that for for many of us has been a fairy tale, has been a story? Oftentimes one told by white people painting it as, you know, the quote unquote, the dark continent, right? And so this idea Mm. that there was nothing of worth or value there. Jelani Cobb, writing in The New Yorker, Mm -hmm. talked about that and said... Because apparently people are tweeting, like, Wakanda's not real. Well, of course. Like, that's some... (laughs) Right. (laughs) We know that. Um, And what he said was, no, Wakanda's not real, but it's no more of a myth than the image of Africa that has been presented by white artists and white historians since the dawn of time. Right. Um, And he also said, related to what you were just talking about, he says, there's a fundamental dissonance in the term African-American two feuding ancestries conjoined by a hyphen. That dissonance, a hyphen standing in for the brutal history that intervened between Africa and America, is the subject of Black Panther. Mm-hmm. And that, so you have the hero, who's the king of Wakanda, this African leader, mm-hmm. and then you have the villain, Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger, who grew up in Oakland. Right. Who grew up in the projects of Oakland. Who only heard the fairy and, tales. Right, who only heard the fairy tales. And the relationship and the resentment and all of that is is what's going on in this movie. Right, right. So these themes of sort of, you know, Black Zionism and um, the Pan-Africanist movement, they have been in play for a a very long time. These ideas of like, you know, reclaiming this idea of what Africa is and what it can be to those of us who were, were born here in America. And it's a switch, it's a switch in theory and then... In films like Black Panther, it's a switch in how we how it's portrayed in art, but this idea of Africa as an aspirational place, mm-hmm. um, and we're saying Africa, it's, this is a huge concept, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it's this very big question that I feel like a lot of Black people sort of grapple with at, at one point in time is this idea of you know this question of what would it mean to be free, mm-hmm. 
And that's sort of what these ideas around these sort of constructs of Africa in art is about. Is like, what would it mean if you could reclaim something? What would it mean if something hadn't been tainted? What would it mean if you had been allowed to sort of flourish without right. Cause, uh, cause intervention? One of, one of the things about Wakanda is that it was never right. colonized. Exactly. It's the one African nation that right. was never colonized. Right. And I don't know that we've seen that much at all in art and in film. I mean, you have something like Coming to America where, you know, this idea of Zamunda... Mm-hmm. which was, you know, beautiful black African kings and queens, and they have these wonderful palaces, and everyone is dressed in these beautiful robes and things, and that was obviously a, a different tone, and they weren't trying to grapple with these sort of issues, really. But, yeah, so it's just, it doesn't happen often, and so when it does, I think it is definitely, you know, a moment for us. Let, let me read you, this is, it's a, it's a long passage, but I think it's worth it. Okay. This is Leonard Pitts Jr. writing in the Miami Herald. He says, if you've ever had the experience of being African-American in Africa, perhaps you know the feeling. That stirring in your chest when you look around and realize that every face is like yours. For the first time in your life, color is not a determinative thing. It feels like breathing after you've been underwater too long, resting after a 20-mile hike. The memory and hope of that feeling is what people are really buying out movie theaters to see. Yes, they say they are doing it because they want black children to understand that they, too, can be superheroes, and that they want girls in particular to know that they can be warriors, scientists, and queens. And they mean it. On the other hand, Panther is hardly the first black action movie, nor is it the first to feature black women in positions of authority. But it is, arguably, the first to awaken the memory and, again, the hope of that world where black simply is. Not a problem, not a reason, not an explanation, nor an argument. Just is. Mm. No, I like that. These are big topics. <laughs> we'll pivot away from the big topics. No, I think they're important. So, I, I mean, I think that that sort of speaks to, you know, this idea of the importance of representation, right? Mm-hmm. Though... Yes, it's important for little black children to see themselves on screen. It's important for black adults to see themselves on screen and represented in ways that recognize the sort of fullness of our humanity. And I don't know how to describe it to someone who doesn't experience it on a, on a daily basis, but there is this sort of relief that comes when you feel like you are not under a gaze, to be black and to be walking around black, you are you are constantly, you know, your identity is refracted through someone's the 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 sort of the majority population's gaze, mm. and that has physical implications. It has you know psychological implications and emotional implications, and so to sort of reclaim this the sort of imagination around Africa, right, is really important because it's sort of this creation of a, of a safe space. It's, it's this creation of, like, what would, again, what would it mean to kind of walk around unencumbered? Mm-hmm. And it's weird to get that from a film from Disney, which is, you know, a mega conglomerate corporate structure that, I mean, they are they're in the business of making money and they're in the business of selling toys. And so there's, there's this sort of tension between, like, it feels revolutionary, but it is not a revolution, mm-hmm. right? Right. It is still just a superhero movie. It is movie. still just a superhero movie. But when you go so long not seeing yourself in, right. in this way, you know, there is something very powerful about that. I don't think white people can understand... You just can't. ...the importance of that. <laughs> There's no way. I just Okay, so... So I, I we talked about we saw the movie twice. I saw the movie the first time with my my best friend who is also a black woman and we our theater was 
I want to say like maybe 90% black and people dressed up in, you know, African garb. There was beautiful just colors and fabrics and some people wearing headdresses and head wraps and or had jewelry sort of weaved through their hair. And it was just this sort of moment of celebration. And there is value in that. There's value in sort of taking a step outside of the sort of political moment we're living in and, and taking this moment to sort of celebrate ourselves. And again, this sort of idea of an Africa that is ours. And when something amazing happened in the film, there were cheers and there was just this sort of engagement in this um, sort of ownership of it uh, that it completely augmented the experience for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you and I saw it, <laughs> we were at a majority white theater and there was none of that. Right. And I have to say I enjoyed that was a it dead crowd. a little less. Like there yeah. was a little piece of me that was just like, oh, I, I'm enjoying this a little less than I did the first time. And it wasn't because anything had changed about the film. The film was still amazing. But there wasn't then this also like feeling of community, this this sort of swelling of pride mm-hmm. that you co- kind of feel in the audience. So there just there is something about it and it doesn't make sense because it's a movie. But it does make sense, though. I mean, there's what it made me think of was there's a in James Baldwin's famous debate with William F. Buckley. Mm-hmm. He talks about growing up as a black child in America and seeing, you know, he says everybody on television, everybody in the movies, every stick and stone is white. And on some level, you think you are, too. Right. And he talks about. You know, you're watching Gary Cooper killing off the Indians and you're like, you identify rooting, Gary Cooper. you're rooting for Gary mm-hmm. Cooper. And it's only years later that you realize, oh, the Indians are me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that is why this kind of thing is important. And I will, and I'm not, I can't claim to understand anything, but I will say it's almost disorienting to be a white person watching this movie mm-hmm. and to be immersed in this incredible world of all of these just beautiful black people mm-hmm. Powerful, strong, engaging, charismatic characters. The entire world of it is black. And then to walk, I like, I literally walked out of it and, you know, went to the restroom after the movie and I walked in and saw the mirror. I was like, oh, I'm super white. <laughs> and it's just, just a split second of disorientation of like, oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you've been looking at all of these incredible, beautiful black people for two and a half hours. Yeah. I do wonder how much, you know, white audiences are sort of consciously taking away or subconsciously taking away from the film um, because, you know, the two white characters, Martin Freeman's um, Agent Ross and uh, Andy Serkis's Claw, are essentially there to move the plot along. Like, they right. really <laughs> they are sort of right. side characters. Um, and that's, you know, that's a role that black audiences are very used right. to playing. You know, we're very much so used to seeing our characters as, you know, the best friend or the sidekick or the, you know. I saw a great tweet about this today. Mm-hmm. This is a tweet from a white guy named Daniel Kibblesmith. He said, I felt extremely represented in Black Panther by the middle-aged white character who was just excited to help out in small ways <laughs> when appropriate. <laughs> that's perfect. There is one scene in the film, and I won't spoil it, but it, it sort of it was Martin Freeman's character that sort of perfectly encapsulates the role of the sort of white character mm-hmm. in this film. And it's just, I, it's like my soul was happy <laughs> after I just can't even tell you <laughs> how happy I was. And if I could, 
you know, implement that into my real life, I absolutely would, but I would definitely get like fired or something, but it's just, it's brilliant. Okay. So I'm, I'm concerned that we have now made this movie sound like a Ta-Nehisi Coates essay. It is not, it's so fun and just so well done, but you know, but that is, you know, the genius of it is that there are all these layers to it, but it is still very much an enjoyable Marvel superhero mm-hmm. film. And that, I mean, the, can I, the women, okay? Let's talk about the women. The women in this film, the black women in this film are just my heroes. From Lupita Nyong'o's Nakia, who plays a, a spy for Wakanda, to uh, Denia Guerrera, who plays the general for the Dora Milaje, Angela Bassett, who plays Queen Ramonda, uh, and Letitia Wright as Shuri. They all kick ass in their own amazing way. And again, they are full characters. They are not in service to T'Challa. They are. It's, a, it's almost their movie. Right, it's as almost much their movie. A lot of, they move a lot of the uh, plot along. They are the ones that take on a lot of sort of you know, the action mm. in the film. I mean, one of my mild criticisms of the film is that T'Challa, Chadwick Boseman's mm-hmm. character, his character arc almost gets a little short shrift, but it had to, I mean, it's it's not really a criticism. Right. Because it's, the, the movie is split so almost evenly among all of these characters, mm-hmm. any one of whom could carry own her own movie. Yeah. Like, I want to see the Shuri movie. Yeah. Like, Reticia Wright was so awesome in that. that she just like, I want to see her movie. And smart. I want to see Lupita Nyong'o's, Nakia's movie. Yes. Okoye's movie would be great. What's Queen Ramonda's backstory? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I just want to know. Yeah. And, again, on just a personal level, having these beautiful, dark-skinned black women as the sort of protagonists of this film was just, again, one other, one further sort of affirmation when you're sitting there and watching this film with their natural hair. It's just you, get, you just don't really see that that often. And that was just, it's a very powerful thing. And they're standing in their full strength. And they are their own people. No objectification. No objectification. No sort of damsel in distress thing going mm-hmm. on none of that um that you see in a lot of marvel films actually um mm-hmm. so yeah i mean they were arguably the best part <laughs> of the movie those women and the beautiful thing is with the really incredible world building that kukler does in this movie i can easily imagine all of those movies mm-hmm. like fuck the marvel cinematic universe let's talk about the black panther cinematic yeah. universe yeah with all the various tribes and all the there are 10 movies you could make you could out follow of this lupita right on her various spy mm-hmm. thing it's just yeah it's it's amazing if i could choose to be someone in this film it would either be <laughs> shuri who's can we just shout out to her the the design of her lab is amazing and i love it not everyone has seen this movie so she is uh yes yeah, sorry T'Challa's little sister, Shuri, who is the tech. She's the genius She's behind the all of genius. the vibranium tech. Yeah. Like, she she is basically Q. Right. I love her. She's amazing. She blows Tony Stark and his little bullshit tech out the water. Like, fuck that. <laughs> Go with Shuri. If I'm if I need somebody to back me up, I'm going with Shuri. Or Mbaku, who is the leader of the Jabari tribe. <laughs> <laughs> One of the five tribes of Wakanda. Played by Winston Duke. Who is amazing. Yes. yes. Yeah, those two characters get most of the comic yeah. relief in this movie. And I love them both. Yes. <laughs> I love them both. So I've totally, like, fangirled over the women of the film, but I don't want to, you know, ignore the amazing job that uh, Chadwick Boseman and Michael B. Jordan did. 
screw the men. We are we. This is all about the women. <laughs> to give the men them, are just there. I don't want to give them short shrift because they both did really beautiful jobs. I think Chadwick had you know a difficult job in that it wasn't sort of the typical sort of superhero role. Mm. Um, it wasn't just you know suit up and fight a bad guy. He had to sort of uh, wrestle with all these internal issues of you know identity and purpose and and responsibility and uh, regret. So it's a it's a very the use of this word sounds racist. It's a very soulful performance. <laughs> and it is. That, that's what I like about it. It's a different kind of mm-hmm. superhero. He's not cocky. Right. He's not aggressive. And it may be because he's different from the others and that he is the actual leader of a people. And so mm. that with that brings its, you know, responsibility than just being able to kind of run around and be... With great power and <laughs> great responsibility. That's terrible. But it's true. <laughs> And then Michael B. Jordan is probably one of my favorite villains at this point yeah. in the in the the sort of superhero universe. In that he isn't really a straightforward villain. Um, you could very much sort of sympathize with where he's coming from. And again, it's sort of you know representing this other facet of the sort of black diaspora. So yeah, I found him extremely powerful, and in particular, the last line that he says in the film just kind of blew me away. So I did want to just make sure (laughs) that we mentioned that there were men in the film, and they were (laughs) good. He is one of those villains where you're not quite sure who to root for. Right, right. You can, I mean, you can see his side of it. You You can understand where the sort of anger is coming from. You know, whether or not we agree with his methods, we, we understand his perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought he was very powerful and very cute. And there's a way in which, again, we're trying not to give spoilers away. Right. But how, how can I say this? There's, a, there's almost a way in which he wins the argument in the movie. Well, I think Nakia wins the argument in the movie. Okay. That would be, I think she's she is sort, sort of, of the bridge between the, the two. Yeah, that's a good um, point. But yeah, T'Challa is definitely influenced by what he learns from and about Killmonger. Right. Okay, so I, I don't want to presume, but I'm feeling like this is a thumbs up for you. This is absolutely a thumbs up. <laughs> it's absolutely a thumbs up. I mean, it's a... It's a black director. It's a, a black costume designer. A black production design. You know, the actors are, you know, from all over the, the diaspora. Like, Lupita has Kenyan parents. Deny her parents are from uh, Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Letitia's parents are from Guyana. You know, Florence is uh, was born in Uganda. Winston is from Tobago. Mm-hmm. Daniel Kaluuya has Ugandan parents. Like, it's just... It's such an, just an amazing, amazing thing to see on, on film. I can't stress enough what a gift it sort of felt like, particularly in this moment. Thumbs up for Black Panther. <laughs> I will probably be seeing it more times. All right. Well, that's going to have to tide you over until... Well, I guess we we have... Uh, wrinkle in Time. Ava's Wrinkle in Time coming out next <laughs> month. Just so my next lifeboat. <laughs> <laughs> After that, it might be a bit of a Yeah, I just got to keep jumping from black film to black film to get through. You know, <laughs> keep them coming, people, because I, I need it. I need it. Anything else? I do also want to mention, so um, the Electoral Justice Project has a hashtag Wakanda the vote. And they are trying to register voters at theaters, which is very cool. And there are former members of the actual Black Panther Party uh, or descendants of folks that were in the Black Panther Party that are using the film to sort of raise awareness around uh, black political prisoners who are still in prison. So that's pretty awesome. We will put the link in the show notes. (laughs) 
You're telling me that the king of a third world country runs around in a bulletproof cat suit? And why don't you ask him yourself? Because he's right outside. <laughs> Bingo. My king. Stop it. The Black Panther lives. He's coming. That's damn calm. Watch me do my I hope you're ready, bro. Cause I'm just getting started. Let's have some fun. You show off. They don't want to see me get into the chair. They just want to see me swimming in the door. Don't drown on ground with you. I want your weapons. I want to play your secrets. Pops on the radar. It's all mine now. Is this your king? Ah! This ends today. Okay, continuing our celebration of black cinematic heroes, <laughs> we're now going to turn our attention backwards to 1971's Shaft. And this is a movie that Nakia chose this week. We are switching roles here, and she is introducing me to something that is a cinematic blind spot for me. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I don't, I wouldn't say that I have a deep abiding love for Shaft. Okay. I don't even, I don't remember the first time I saw it. It was probably with my mom at some point because that's how I saw a lot of movies that I shouldn't have seen early. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it is, you can't deny its sort of place in black film history and American history, really. I don't know how I've never seen Shaft. I think I've seen part, like, this is what you always say. <laughs> I've seen parts of it. I think I've seen parts of it, mm-hmm. um, but I really don't. I could lie, but I know I've never sat down and watched Shaft. <laughs> what about just black protagonist films in general? Well, I mean, I was thinking about that. And I guess, you know, I grew up a white boy in rural Maine in the 70s and 80s. It's probably not a big surprise that I hadn't seen <laughs> Shaft mm-hmm. or a lot of black exploitation movies. Probably my local video store did not even stock those. I was trying to think about the whole issue of black characters on film, Mm -hmm. and especially black protagonists, black heroes. Right. And I don't think there was a lot. Um, In movies, what I remember is the buddy movies, Mm -hmm. right? So it was a white guy and a black guy. It was Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor in Stir Crazy and Silver Streak. Or it was a little later, Eddie Murphy in Trading Places in 48 Hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I think back to like real, true black protagonists from that time, the first one that comes to mind is, it, it was the very first movie we did for the Unenthusiastic Critic on the blog. It was Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. And that is a buddy movie. That's Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little. But Cleavon Little is the he unquestioned is, yeah, hero the of hero. that movie. Yeah. He's the star, and Gene Wilder is the sidekick. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons that movie is so important. Um, But yeah, I don't think there were a lot of solo black protagonists in cinema that crossed over to white audiences until we got to Eddie Murphy, really. Right, right. I mean, Pryor did a couple. Pryor had a few solo efforts. But yeah, there there wasn't a lot. Yeah. 
And especially not this sort of genre action hero right. kind of stuff until you get to like Eddie Murphy in uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Right. I wonder before that, would it have been Romero's Night of the Living Dead? Would that have? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good point, which I, I don't think I saw that until I was like in college. Okay. So I didn't, that wasn't something as a kid. I mean, as a kid, I literally, I am not sure I saw a real life black person until I was 19 years old. That is terrifying. I mean, that's, <laughs> Maine is like 98.6 white. Yes, I've been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it terrifies you. <laughs> So, in thinking about this, I've also just been thinking about, like, where did my concept of black people come from? And it came from movies. Mostly it came from television. Television was better. Right. Good Times, The Jeffersons, Sanford and Son, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. So you saw a lot of poor black people. Well, yeah, they were very popular during the 70s on television. Yes. (laughs) And a lot of that was... I think those things are interesting to explore because they were, I think, very consciously playing to both black and white audiences. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And how well they did either, I guess, is is debatable. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the famous story that John Amos left Good Times because he thought it was too much shucking and jiving from J.J. That that's what they wanted. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, the sort of Steve Urkel problem, right? Right. (laughs) It's just you start to focus on... You know, the, what is essentially becomes the merchandise. Like, you focus on the thing that people are, are connecting with and resonating with. But, yeah, I mean, it is interesting to think that the only sort of exposure that you had, since there weren't really any black people in your life, mm-hmm. that then the only exposure that you, you had was from these sitcoms that portrayed, you know, a, very, a pretty narrow picture of, you know, black America. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily negative. I mean, I, Good Times is a great show. and Yeah. But it is a very specific. Like, that was not how I grew up. Right. Um, and then in terms, again, coming back to black heroes, we then come back to superheroes. Right. Like comic books were actually better than mm. movies at that point. Mm-hmm. And that's not to overstate how good comic books were because they were not. There were not a ton of black characters and they were not handled very well. Right. But there were some black heroes. There was Black Panther. There was the Falcon, Storm of the X-Men, Luke Cage, Misty Knight. In some ways, those were my first exposure to mm-hmm. the idea of a black hero. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any black, quote-unquote, superhero films later? So there's, like, the Blade movies. I saw, I think, the first Blade. (laughs) I just, yeah, I can't. With Wesley Snipes, I just, I just can't. So one of the things that I have appreciated about... um, the sort of fury around Black Panther is that it is, I think, or at least I hope, it's, it seems like it's shedding some light on past black superheroes that people may have forgotten. Mm. So people, folks like Meteor Man, mm. uh, Spawn, Blank Man, you know, all of these succeeded at, you know, various levels. But this idea that this is not a new thing, it's definitely a level happening at a level that hasn't really happened before. I mean, in all these superheroes... Their blackness wasn't always uh, relevant or key to the plot in the way that, you know, Black Panther is. So in one scene in Black Panther, there is the iconic photo of uh, Huey P. Newton, who uh, was the co-founder of Black Panther Party. And it's that poster that everyone's seen. He's in, you know, the black leather jacket with the beret and he has he's in the, the big wicker chair and he's holding the rifle and the right. spear. That same sort of imagery is mirrored in the Black Panther film posters, T'Challa in his sort of throne. 
you can sort of see the the influence there. And my thinking was that sort of the through line, sort of these two moments in history, you know, how we got from Huey P. Newton and Black Panther Party to black superheroes opening, you know, multi-million dollar films. You know, you can't get from point A to point B without talking about black exploitation films, in right. particular Shaft. And like you said, that through line is in Black Panther. Right. That it starts out very deliberately in Oakland, mm-hmm. where Ryan Coogler is from, but also, more importantly, where the Black Panther Party started. Right. Exactly. And I thought that it would just make a good pairing with our discussion with Black Panther, because, you know, he's arguably the first kind of quote-unquote black superhero mm-hmm. for the big screen. Certainly, I think, the first one to, like, cross over into right. white audiences right. as well. Yeah. I mean, I think there had been a couple of black exploitation movies before that. Um, Mario Van Peebles did a uh, Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song, which was in uh, 1971. That's I think I believe that's officially the kind of first official uh, black exploitation film. Right. But Shaft was sort of the one that really kind of blew the doors off of it and sort of ushered in this this new genre. Um, and there were lots of films to follow that would mirror the themes that it laid out. So, like, loosely defined, black exploitation is a genre of film that, you know, primarily black casts. It's typically set in sort of urban environments, sort of inner city, quote unquote, ghettos. The characters are typically, you know, drug dealers, pimps, private detectives, you know, mob bosses, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And the antagonists are typically the white characters who are, you know, racist or evil or dumb. And they're sort of they're sort of kind of grindhousey kind of films. Mm-hmm. They're low budget and it's it's about, you know, violence. There's usually like hyper male sexuality and So sexist as shit. <laughs> It's not, you know, feminist theory, no. And, you know, the NAACP in particular has said that, you know, black exploitation films, you know, reinforce negative stereotypes about black people. That is a fair <laughs> critique. But it was also, again, sort of the first time that a lot of black audiences got to see someone that looked like them, got to see storylines that, you know, at least loosely reflected what their lives actually looked like. Mm-hmm. And these were generally made by black directors. Yes. So Shaft with Gordon Parks, Sweet Sweetback's badass song, Mario Van Peebles wrote and directed it and funded it, I believe. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of them actually were directed by black directors. And again, you sort of have this sort of conversation around these are still, you know, white owned properties, right. really. So what does that mean in terms of this idea behind sort of black representation and, and sort of black ownership of our narratives? Right. So it's celebrating that, yes, there's representation happening, representation and right. black cast and black right. directors putting their experiences on screen. But on the other hand, it is, as the name implies, exploitative. And Right. And I mean, it bought in like $12 million in its first year and it costs a little bit over a million dollars. And again, like I said earlier, it ended up sort of opening the gates to these these sort of other films like Cleopatra Jones and Foxy Brown and, mm-hmm. and et cetera. So in the sense that, you know, representation leads to more representation and leads to more films starring black folks then it did that Mm -hmm. you know whether or not we have take issue with the storylines or the themes that they were presenting it did mean that there were more black faces in film because they saw that it made money right did you see the uh the remake (laughs) with samuel l jackson i did i I didn't see that one either you have to see it if only for um jeffrey wright's character he plays jeffrey wright he's fucking amazing was jeffrey wright not in black panther come to think of it he really should have been. Like, uh, <laughs> I think he was too light. <laughs> Maybe he'll be the villain in the next one. <laughs> but um, no, yeah, he plays, I think his character's name is Peoples. 
And it's just, it's fucking hilarious and amazing, <laughs> and I love Jeffrey Wright. Um, so yes, if only for Jeffrey Wright, you should absolutely it was watch. John Singleton directed yes, that, right? Yes, that was John Singleton. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I highly recommend. If it's he's in it for maybe a total of like ten minutes or something, but it's it's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, anything else? you're in charge this week, so anything else I need to know before we sit down to watch Shaft? No, I think it's best you go into a clean. Okay. I don't want to influence your... All I really know about it is he's a private detective, and I, I know the song. The Isaac Hayes I mean, song. that's really... Isaac Hayes did the whole entire soundtrack, which is just... It's in its phenomenal soundtrack. Which also, Kendrick Lamar did the soundtrack for Black Panther, so we also have some more synergy going on there about sort of these great black artists helming the soundtracks of these these films, these black superhero films. Okay, well, it makes sense to me. Great. You know. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And see, this is why I can't be the unenthusiastic critic, because I, I don't go into these things with a baseline of hostility and resistance okay, that you I do. I so. mean, hostility is such a hostile word. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's a movie I haven't seen? By all means, let's watch it. Really? Yeah. Okay. But Until we get to the Prince movie. See, that's exactly, yeah, that's, next, that's what I'm saying. That, that was your other choice for... <laughs> When I said you're picking the movie, you're like, yeah. I just couldn't make the argument that it was, you know. <laughs> that Under the Cherry Moon pairs <laughs> as well with Black Panther. I was trying to make it work. I really was <laughs> trying to make it work, and I couldn't. And I, I failed, Prince. But see, we are going to watch Under the Cherry Moon. We'll, we'll stick a pin in that we for a later, a later episode. We are going to watch Under the Cherry Moon. But, I mean, if you want to be all, it needs to be important. Shaft's his name. Shaft's his game. That's some cold shit. Throwing my man Leroy out the window. The mob wanted Harlem back. They got shot. Shaft. Hotter than Bond, cooler than Bullet. Rated R. If you want to see Shaft, ask your mama. I'm ready whenever you are. <laughs> You don't like sitting in the big chair. I really don't. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, okay, so during the break, we watched Shaft. Michael, what did you think of it? <laughs> I actually enjoyed Shaft. Of course you did. It was my pick. Well, no, that was not a given. Yes, that it, was... I mean, pretty much every film that I love is a good film. In so. fact, pretty much any other film you would have picked, I think <laughs> we might have had a different outcome. You're going to love Under the Cherry Moon. We're going to watch it, and you're going to love Under the Cherry Moon. Hmm. You want to bet? Sure, I'll bet. So, no, I en I enjoyed it. It was actually a better movie than I was expecting it to be. Mm -hmm. um, it was very. It was actually fairly different than I was expecting. What were you expecting? In some ways, I think, are probably going to be interesting to talk about. I think I was expecting it to be much more grindhouse-y. Mm -hmm. um, and I think probably, like, Black Dynamite prepared me <laughs> to expect a much worse movie. And I'm sure some of these are. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was it was a little rough. It was a little low budget, but it was acting wasn't super great. But and here's where I need to admit to my just abysmal ignorance. I knew the name of the director of Shaft. But you didn't know who Gordon Parks was? And I knew the photography no. of Gordon Parks. I had not realized they same were the same person. Dude. Yeah, and he's actually makes a cameo in the film. Does he? Yeah. Is he in it? He's when he goes knocking on the doors of various apartments, Gordon Parks answers one of the doors. Okay. Because at one point early in the film, I was like, there's some really good shots in this mm -hmm. movie. And you were like, of course, it's Gordon Parks. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it's that Gordon Parks. Yes. 
Um, for people who don't know, do you want to talk about Gordon Parks? Yeah, so Gordon Parks is just, or was an amazing, amazing, amazing photographer. He was also a poet, he was a journalist, and he was an activist. He was uh, a composer. He was a composer. He co-founded Essence Magazine. He was the first African-American to work at Life Magazine. Um, so yeah, he's just, he was a he was a brilliant, brilliant man. Very extremely talented. And his, his photographs chronicling black life in the 40s and 50s are just Some of the most amazing. iconic images. I mean, everybody has seen at least one or two of those images. Like the, the mother and the little girl. The, the, yeah, that famous image of the, the little black girl looking in mm-hmm. the window of the shop at mm-hmm. the white mannequin. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he's, yeah. So this is Gordon Parks. So yeah, I, I had not realized that that was, it was the same person. Mm-hmm. And then I was looking him up. He was considered the first black man to direct a major Hollywood studio film mm-hmm. with uh, The Learning Tree in 1969, which was based on his own autobiography. There had been other black directors who had directed independent films or exploitation mm-hmm. type films, but that was a serious studio drama, and right. he was the first director to really helm one of those, the first black director. Right. I think I read somewhere that it didn't necessarily get a ton of action at the box office, mm-hmm. and then two years later, he made Shaft, so then we have black exploitation. But yeah, I mean, you can definitely see his hand in a lot of the shots throughout Shaft. One sort of visual theme throughout is Shaft is shot a lot from underneath, mm-hmm. so it makes him look sort of larger than life and mm-hmm. Tom gives him almost this sort of um, regal presence. So there are a lot of different shots like that. There's a scene towards the beginning where he is in a shoeshine shop. Yes. And the way the camera is angled, it, it's almost as if he's like a king in a throne, mm-hmm. the way that because it, it's shot sort of underneath him. And so he just, you're sort of like looking up to him. But there are a lot of shots like that. That is just like a, that's Gordon Park shot. There's also a lot of shots, and this is something you see in his photography, like that image we were talking about of shooting through glass, yeah. shooting through windows, mm-hmm. which is yeah. almost like eavesdropping, mm-hmm. all, sort of like just being a bystander while all these things are happening around you, which to me was almost the more interesting part of this movie. I mean, the story is surprisingly standard detective story tropes. You have the the ridiculously complicated plot that doesn't make any sense and all of these characters that all of whom are lying Mm -hmm. and this kind of quest storyline to rescue this girl who's been kidnapped. Right. You know, the, the formula of that is not changed much here from... Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe or a million detective stories. Right. It's the location that's different and the protagonist, to some extent, who's different. Like, the plot is almost incidental, but just seeing it as Park's kind of chronicling life in Harlem in the 70s was really interesting. Yeah. It's funny that you say that about the sort of almost cookie-cutter nature of the plot and that you can sort of drop that plot into a bunch of different mm-hmm. sort of detective stories and it would work... The film was actually adapted from Ernest Tiedemann's novels, mm-hmm. and in the original story, Shaft was white. Right. So you have the success of Melvin Van Peebles' Sweet Sweetback, and they realize that that can be that was such a success with black audiences. And when Gordon Parks came with this script, he decided to change it to a black character mm-hmm. because they saw that that could have the sort of crossover appeal. You could appeal to both black audiences and white audiences. And there's this book by Ed Guerrero called Framing Blackness, the African-American Image, where he has a quote from Van Peebles, and it says, originally, the script for Shaft was written for a white actor, but they changed to a black they threw in a couple motherfuckers and that became a black man so this idea that like they didn't really change much about it that there isn't anything really inherently black about the the film or the character it just had they just sort of swapped him in 
So I think the the film is very self-aware about the fact that this is a black hero mm-hmm. and that it's somewhat groundbreaking in that. Mm-hmm. And like the opening shots, again, just it's a great shot. You start off with this really high overhead shot that sort of zooms down through Times Square right. and eventually picks up, all in one shot, picks up Shaft, Richard Roundtree coming out of the subway. Mm-hmm. But in that shot, we see a lot of movie marquees, and it stars like Robert Redford and George C. Scott and Michael Caine and George Pappard. And I think at one point we see a billboard for Love Story. Mm-hmm. But all of these, like, lily white movies. <laughs> and then here comes Shaft. Our black hero. Right. In his leather coat. But going to what you were saying, one of the other surprises I had about this movie is I expected it to be much more Shaft against the man. Right. Right. That I expected it to be much more black power, much more militant, much more whitey as the foe. <laughs> you expected a lot more O-phase. I did. <laughs> and some jive turkeys and honky. And that, that's not what it is. No, not at all. And in fact, Shaft has a pretty good relationship with the cops. Mm-hmm. And the mobster, Bumpy, Bumpy Jonas, is that his yep. name? Mm-hmm played by Moses Gunn, accuses him of, you have white one foot in the white world. Right. And the militant, basically it's the Black Panther right. Party, the right. militant guys call him Tom. Right. So that, that was interesting to me. And I don't know if that is a sign of the fact that, like you said, the novel mm-hmm. was written with a white protagonist. But also just a reminder that this was still a white studio. Right, exactly. This was the money behind this film was white. Mm-hmm. That it was not going to be right a radical right film politically. Right. So Sweetback was very much sort of that sort of anti-white sort of. Right. Um, but he financed that himself. He, right. That was all Van right. Peebles. It was totally his project. It was truly like black independent film at its core. Um, so he was sort of able to explore those sort of more revolutionary ideas and themes. And so they wanted the success of Sweetback, and they wanted to sort of play with those ideas, again, because they saw that it brought in large black audiences, but you had to do it in a way that would allow more crossover appeal, so you you can have those sort of messages. So even in the geography of Shaft's life, you kind of see this attempt at playing both sides. So his very nice apartment Hmm. is in the village. His office is sort of, you know, midtown, Times Square. And he also has these connections in Harlem. Mm -hmm. Um, So he really isn't, you know, tied to any one community. At the same time that he has the black girlfriend, if we're going to call her girlfriend because he treats her like trash. Um, (laughs) He's also, you know, very willing to sleep with the pretty white woman he picked up in the bar. Yeah. Okay. But wait a minute. So let's talk because I disagree with this a little bit. Okay. Because there is a difference in the way he treats... All of these people. Yes. Like he is, we we have those scenes of him working the streets in Harlem. It's just good old fashioned shoe leather detective work. Handing out money to the people. Going door to door, knocking on doors, asking questions. He is extremely polite to all of those people. You know, he's not doing a tough guy thing. He's not doing a cocky thing. But when he's talking to the white characters, (laughs) he's very cocky. He's got a lot of attitude. Yes. And then the women too. And there are no good women characters in this. Well, there are no they're, women. I mean, they're, they are yeah. barely characters at all. <laughs> yeah. But we see him interact with two black women, mm-hmm. one of whom we know he's sleeping with. I'm not sure if the other one's a friend or what. But he does. He doesn't actually treat them badly. We don't see him. He doesn't treat them badly. He. 
I mean, when the girlfriend, when he calls the girlfriend and she's like, I love you, he's like, yes, I know. Yes. <laughs> Which is a line Han Solo would steal ten years later, by the way. So, no, he doesn't treat them poorly, but he's not. But the yeah. white woman who comes on to him yeah, that was... in a bar is treated pretty badly. Yeah. And has, even she says, you're He has you're no shitty. interest in her, right? <laughs> she's like, you're good in bed, but you're pretty shitty afterwards. That's true. Sure. And the other thing, the only other thing I can say about the women throughout the movie is there is an element in which we see, and it's very brief and it's very subtle, women like checking the behavior of black men. Mm -hmm. Like the women have a certain authority. There's like that old woman in the apartment when they, he he and and the black uh, revolutionary revolutionary sneak through the apartment, Mm -hmm. that old woman's like, you know, don't be bringing that stuff in here Mm -hmm. and don't. She just has a certain authority right. where it's like, you know... You're not going to be using that language Know how to in behave here. in my right. apartment yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And can I just... Another nod to Gordon Parks or whoever was on the sort of production design side. When they're in that older woman's... Older black woman's apartment, mm-hmm. there's a picture of... Um, and it's a picture that almost every black grandma had of Bobby Kennedy... And JFK uh-huh. and MLK. Yeah. And it's in this beautiful, like, gold, ornate frame. And I just saw it and I was like, oh, it's just a perfect yeah. little, like, of course that would be in her apartment. Yeah. Of course you have that. And it's just, I just love little moments like that in the movie. All of it is very authentic. Yeah. And I assume because it was authentic. Right. They didn't have a huge budget. They were right. shoot. They probably shot in an actual old grandma's apartment for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of nice touches like that. I like the guy, maybe that was Gordon Parks, that he's knocks on the door and mm-hmm. as he's leaving, the guy's like, do you know what the number was Yes, today? that was Gordon Parks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Just those little subtle touches about culture in Harlem. Oh, wait, was it? It may have been, because it may have been somebody else. It may not have been Gordon Parks. But yeah, Shaft is wired into this community. He knows everyone. Everyone knows Shaft. He knows the blind newspaper guy. He knows the guy in the shoe shine. He knows the gay bartender. <laughs> like, everybody knows Shaft. Everybody, And he's actually nice to everybody. Yeah, no, he's very charming. Except, you know, when he wants to throw a guy out the window. <laughs> <laughs> for, can we talk about, because that's sort of how the movie opens, is that these guys come looking for him in his office, who work for Bumpy. Right. And he ends up throwing one of them out the window. Right. For, as it turns out, basically they were going to offer him a job. They had guns, though. He didn't know what was happening. As one of Bumpy's other <laughs> flunkies says, that's some cold shit, man. All he knew was they had guns and they had been looking for him. But he didn't even ask them. He just, like, walked in. You don't ask questions. In. If somebody okay. says there are people looking for you and they have guns, you don't ask questions. You got to go out the window. And then I'll save this other one and keep him alive and that's ask him questions. That's some cold shit, man. No, that's, that's how you got to do it. You live a, that is not, you know, the lifestyle where you, you ask polite questions, where you have preliminary conversations, throw them out the window first, ask questions later. So I mentioned the, the gay bartender. Sure. There is a weird way in which this film is oddly progressive. That character was a total stereotype. Absolutely. I mean, he was a total flaming homosexual. Yeah. I think he was actually wearing a pink shirt. He was wearing a pink shirt. Yes. Um, But. Again, Shaft liked him. Mm-hmm. Shaft was they were friends to the extent that we assume Shaft has any friends. Mm-hmm. He even grabs Shaft's ass at and one Shaft point, doesn't and really Shaft even... doesn't <laughs> turn around and punch him. Right. There's also in that opening scene, and again, this is something I had to look up to see what it was. He walks through a protest mm-hmm. that's happening, mm-hmm. 
It was a protest against a employment firm called Fidelifax, mm-hmm. and it was it was a gay rights protest. It was because this employment firm had been screening out homosexuals. Oh, okay. And this was, I mean, it's not something they staged for the movie. It's something that was happening on the day they were filming, and Gordon Parks kept it in the movie as mm-hmm. he walks through that protest. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think this movie sort of does a lot of work to sort of touch on a lot of different communities in New York, just from having the various neighborhoods, like their scenes set in the village, their scenes set in Harlem, their scenes mm-hmm. in uh, Midtown Manhattan. So I think it does a, a pretty good job of sort of painting the city as, you know, a really diverse space. And again, one where Shaft is pretty much moving pretty smoothly through mm-hmm. all of them. He doesn't really have any problems with anyone. And it's when when you think about one of the themes of these sort of black exploitation films being hyper black male sexuality, and then you have the exchange that happened in the bar with the the gay bartender. Mm-hmm. The thinking would be that 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 would turn into something that he would then yeah, have to exactly. like say, you know, hey man, you know, right. I'm not down with that. Or shit. just turn around or, and punch him. Or in just the face. right, exactly, and it, and that doesn't happen. So that's another where it's a little bit of a subversion of kind of what you expect coming out of um, black exploitation films. Yeah. But then you also have the very lovingly filmed (laughs) sex scene (laughs) between him and the black woman. And you barely see her. It's really a loving sort of portrait (laughs) of Richard Roundtree's ass Uh and black body. And, you know, you sort of get signals of her ecstasy or whatever. But it really is... About him, yeah. You see, you see her hands, right? On just his kind of back. grabbing his back, right? But it really is. You're just looking at Richard Roundtree's ass for yeah. you know three minutes or however long it goes on. Well, that scene opens. She walks into her apartment, and he's naked. He's lounging naked <laughs> on her fur covered reading a couch, magazine, reading Essence magazine. <laughs> As and, you do. <laughs> and he says what is basically the only character line that he gets in the entire movie. He says. I got to feeling like a machine. <laughs> That's no way to feel. And this is exp- this is to explain why he had to show up at her apartment naked so they could have sex. You got to like, get right. When you get to feeling like a machine, you got to go. Got to go to your lady. You got to go yeah. get your lady and start feeling right. <laughs> but again, that is a, a marked difference from the hookup he has later with the white yeah, woman, yeah. who is kind of portrayed as you know. A slut yeah. and sort of she she's eyeing him up the second he walks into the bar mm-hmm. and he takes her home, but he doesn't give a shit about her <laughs> and he's not. I had to, I looked up too because I was curious as to whether that was one of the first interracial sex scenes mm. in film, and it's not the first. There was I think the the one that's generally credited as the first is in like a spaghetti western starring Jim Brown and Raquel Welch. Oh, where Raquel Welch was actually playing a Native American. <laughs> They always gotta fuck it up. <laughs> but she, it, it was a sex scene between interracial actors, and but that had no nudity in it, and it was much more. I, I went and found the scene online. It starts out much more like a rape scene. It, there's oh. much, so this with the white woman is the only woman in the movie who's nude in Shaft. Mm-hmm. I have to assume that that was probably one of the first mainstream right. scenes Where like that. The white woman is the aggressor, and right, right. So we haven't talked about the plot at all. No. So basically, Bumpy, who's a mobster, a black a mobster, black mobster. Right. hires him to find his daughter. Right. And Bumpy initially tells him that he thinks the daughter might have been kidnapped by these black militants. Right. But that's 
that's a lie. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember why he, Bumpy told him that. I don't know that we ever got a clear explanation of why he said that. Oh, maybe because... No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No. But that's how the... Again, that's how these movies are. <laughs> maybe he just wanted to get them on board so that uh, Shaft sure would have either. sort of backup. But yes, he enlists the help of these revolutionaries... Mm -hmm. Who, who, again, are shown to be not very effectual. Not, not very effectual. And it, they're none of the, the the sort of politics are really discussed. There's no sort no. of black power speech or anything. Like they they, they look like him, just four guys right. sitting around an apartment. But they have a Malcolm X poster up. So yeah. that's how you know <laughs> that they are black revolutionaries. But yeah, so again, so this idea of black exploitation films being very sort of anti-white, pro-black power kind of things, that was a space where that conversation maybe could have been had. Right. It's, it's a little, it's just sort of insinuated in them calling, you know, Shaft, Uncle Tom, mm -hmm. but there really isn't any discussion about, you know, black power what movement, agenda is, what the agenda what, is, right. you know, what they're hoping for, you know, they want... Or what Shaft thinks about right. it. Right. And Bumpy, you know, is offering them money in order to go after the Italian mob to get his daughter back, and they do right, say... which is the, who really kidnapped his daughter. Who really kidnapped his daughter. Um, which is important, because then then the movie becomes about who's going to control Harlem. Right, the black the gang people. or the white gang. So right. the white mob is trying to move in and take right. it away from Bumpy, who's a criminal, but he's a black criminal, and right. he's got roots in the community. And he does have, but the black revolutionary, when uh, Shaft and he and Bumpy are in Bumpy's office, he says something to the effect of, like, basically saying, you know, you're poisoning our community with your shit. So there's, mm -hmm. there are little moments where that sort of highlights the friction between these different communities through which, you know, Shaft moves. But there isn't this sort of quote unquote message moment mm -hmm. kind of thing happening. Um, and again, because Shaft is much more an individualist than he is anything. He isn't necessarily a revolutionary and he isn't in the white man's pocket. He's just kind of, right. I'm going to do my shit and I need to get paid. And right. Which, get again, which again is a classic <laughs> right. private eye right. mode. So we come back to, well, this was a white character. Is this an instance of we just kind of painted him black and then sent him on? And is mm. that is that substantial representation? Does that, you know, mean something in black film? Or is it okay to have that and just say, well, it's a fun film that appeals to black audiences and why can't we just have a fun guy that wins in the end and right. you know, gets to say the good lines and gets to, you know, have the ladies and I mean I, I do think that's what's interesting about the movie is because the blackness is all in the texture. It's it all is. in the environment. It's, it's all yeah. right. It's the leather coat and the turtleneck yeah, the, and the, whole... the clothes alone. Right. Just looking at the difference between the way Shaft dresses right. and the way the cops in their mm -hmm. you know cheap gray suits right. dress, stuff like that. Yeah. It's a swagger more than it is mm -hmm. any sort of political standing or, right. or idea. Right. The cops in this movie crack me up, though, because they're so... Like, when they find Shaft in the... They're looking for... Everybody's looking for Shaft. Everybody's looking for But in the beginning, they're looking for Shaft. And the, the lead detective, I don't remember his name, but he... Vic. Vic. He finds Shaft, and he's like, we hear rumbles, there's something going on. What's going on? Like, they have absolutely no fucking idea what's going on. Right. Well, and that's why they give him such a, a long leash. It's like, well, you know, we're going to let Shaft do his thing, <laughs> right. and he'll help us do our job, and <laughs> you'll, we'll sort of bumble along in the back, and it'll be fine. And they pop up occasionally throughout the movie to right. ask him, so what's going on? Right. And he's like, I'll let you know. I just need you to have some yeah. squad cars here, <laughs> and they're like, okay, we'll send some squad cars for you, Shaft. <laughs> and then, going back to the, the texture of of the blackness of the movie. Right. There's little stuff like the cab driver that won't pick him right. up. Right. <laughs> Drives off. The cab starts to stop for him, then pulls Many ahead and picks up a white that guy. Little moment. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. yeah, that's always like a really dude. <laughs> 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 yes. 
there are definitely moments where it's, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that his blackness is incidental, because I don't think that's true. No. But it is not the sort of driving force of the film in a way that other black exploitation films were. It wasn't, I'm going out to kick ass because I'm black and I'm mad at the man. Right. But like you said, there is that swagger that I'm black and I'm not going to take any shit. Right. He's friendly with the cops, but he's not afraid of the cops. No. He's more representing black power than Mm -hmm. advocating for it or fighting Mm -hmm. for it. It's all, it's, I mean, it's an interesting idea of black power, though, right? Because it isn't black power as a political strength. It's almost black power as an economic strength. It's black power being, I am an independent, you know, self-employed black man. I can have a very nice apartment in mm-hmm. the village and go about my way, again, in many spaces throughout the city, fairly unencumbered. So this idea of tying black pride and black power to larger idea of um, capitalistic achievement I think I read somewhere that following the movie, there was actually a fairly big merchandising campaign. So they were selling shaft leather coats and shaft watches and shaft. So <laughs> it's it, a nice watch. I it is a nice watch. watch. So, but this this idea of right, you're buying into this idea of a lifestyle. Like right. that is what it was. Instead of this sort of movement idea of a movement, it was I'm buying into a very particular style. So what did you, what was your experience like watching it this time? You said you hadn't seen it in a long time. I hadn't seen it in a long time. Um, I, th- I think I remembered him being, I thought I remembered more women. Uh, <laughs> 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 so obviously I was, I think I just multiplied women in my head. I was like, oh, I remember it, it was just a lot of sort of misogyny happening, but there wasn't as much. Well, of the, the song suggests that right, there's Right, the song a, like, suggests they, that there's a lot of, and he mentions getting laid at least twice right. in the film so it is obviously happening we just didn't get to see it all um but it was pretty much as i remembered it was yeah and i think what happens is when we talk about black exploitation films they all sort of get lumped together and we apply the themes to all of them and they all like again this right. is not they're not all created equal right i think they refer to sweet sweet back as like a super spade movie essentially you know like, mm-hmm. and that's not really i would not say that that was what shaft was I would not characterize it as this sort of black power anti-white film. Right. All right. Can we talk about the ending of this movie? Because it's ridiculous. What's wrong with the ending? It's perfect. So Shaft has this plan. (laughs) He finds out where the girl is being kept. And he has this plan to get in there. Mm -hmm. It's a super complicated plan. It's It's way more complicated. Perfectly orchestrated. There's like 20 different people involved. (laughs) The black militants who Bumpy has hired for like 10,000 a head. Yeah. To be involved in this plan. There's like 16 of them. And then there's like a cab driver outside giving a signal on his car horn when everything is synchronized. They're just willfully just like knocking in hotel employees unconscious and stealing their outfits well, to pretend to be you're bellboys gonna, You're going to ask, hey, can I have your outfit so that I can go <laughs> kill some Italian mobsters upstairs? And then when they get upstairs, they've all got guns except one guy's got a fire hose that he's fighting with. Mm-hmm. And Shaft is hanging from the roof, <laughs> and it's not enough that he's going to he's going to swing and smash through the window of the room where the girl is being kept. First, he has to throw fire through the window. He throws mm-hmm. some burning something he has through the window to set the room on fire before he smashes through the window to serve as a and shoots the one guy that's in there guarding the I don't girl. know if they knew that there was one guy in there. If there had been multiple It's guys, a window. He could see who was in there. At that point, he had the fire in his hand. So what are you going to do? Why? That's my question. But, he no, didn't no, need no, the no, fire. No. If nothing else, no. he didn't need the fire. No. 
They lit they they lit the fire. And who decided that one poor guy outside, you don't get a gun, you get a fire hose. We don't trust you with a gun. We're going to give you a fire hose so you can spray the Italian mobsters who do have Tommy guns. You just complained about them beating people up for no reason. They're being humane by just, you know, using fire hoses. I'm not going to shoot you. I'm just going to, you know. They and, shot all the other guys. And reclamation of the fucking bullshit. <laughs> See, that that's what I think that was about. tactics that they use on black communities. A black man shooting a white man with a fire hose. Which, okay, <laughs> fair enough. I'm just saying, logistically, from a plot perspective. Oh my gosh, you're trying to make sense of Shaft. <laughs> It has I was hoping ridiculous. they had the fire hose to put out the damn fire that Shaft no. started that he didn't need to start. He did need to start it. He lit the fire before he got to the window, so he did not know that there was only one guy in the room. He probably thought that there were multiple mobsters in the room, so you need a distraction. So you throw the little Molotov cocktail in there to distract, and then you burst through the window. You shoot whoever you He's can. He's lucky he didn't set the girl. He was trying to rescue on fire. Girl. Oh, my gosh. It was perfectly orchestrated. <laughs> <laughs> perfectly orchestrated. <laughs> And then he gets her, he, he finally gets her out and he goes to the payphone in the last shot of the movie and calls the cop and is, and is basically like, yeah, come clean up my mess. Shitty. <laughs> Shitty. Because <laughs> he's shaft. <laughs> That's another one of those great shots, that last shot of the yeah. film. Again, it's... It follows him coming all the way out of the building, and then he gets in the in the phone booth, and we're right. shooting him from outside the phone booth. It's a really nice shot. Yeah. There's some great shots in that film. Did you enjoy the music? I did enjoy the music. With the great Isaac Hayes. <laughs> See, I have trouble not thinking of Isaac Hayes as chef from okay, South Okay, don't Park do that. Now. No, no, because no. And then we get into the whole, what is it, the Scientology thing? I think thing? he did become and, a Scientologist, yeah. yes. Yeah. No, so he's I, Isaac I have Hayes, separating the that. brilliant musician. He's not <laughs> chef. I mean, he was chef, but he is not. I do not think of him as chef. But no, I enjoyed the music. I was, you know, tapping my foot throughout the whole thing. <laughs> the theme from Shaft won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Mm-hmm. And it's on AFI's 100 Years 100 Songs list. Well, of course. It has I to mean, be. It is iconic. That whole opening shot yeah. that is scored to... The theme, theme from Shaft, is just a brilliant yeah. opening. It's probably one of the most iconic. It's, it starts movie out openings. with that overhead shot. It picks him up coming out of the subway. Then he's just like fucking walking into traffic, <laughs> flipping off cabs. <laughs> I'm walking. I'm Shaft. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's a perfect introduction to the character. It is. All right. Well, let's. So let's to conclude this. Let's talk about the relationship of these two movies that we watched this week. Okay. And here's, here's a quote to kind of bring us full circle. Um, this was an interview that Gordon Parks did with Roger Ebert in 1972, shortly after this movie came out. Mm-hmm. And he said, people come up and ask me if we really need this image of Shaft, the black Superman. Hell yes, there's a place for John <laughs> Shaft. I was overwhelmed by our world premiere. Suddenly I was the perpetrator of a hero. Ghetto kids were coming down to see their hero, Shaft. And here was a black man on the screen they didn't have to be ashamed of. Hmm. Here they had a chance to spend their $3 on something they wanted to see. We need movies about the history of our people, yes. But we need heroic fantasies about our people, too. We all need a little James Bond now and then. And that's pretty much what Black Panther has become. Mm-hmm. And again, we talked about this earlier, this sort of power of representation 
recognizing that it's coming from, you know, a white studio, but there is something powerful about black director and a nearly all black cast in a film of this sort of size and budget. It's really hard to sort of articulate how how impactful and how important that can be, particularly to young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, we all need heroes and we all need heroes that look like us. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we often see is that movies by black directors or movies that have predominantly black casts have to sort of do double work. Like it has to be a good superhero movie and it also has to be good representation mm-hmm. of black folks. And so are we doing both those things and that's how we're judging success. Whereas Captain America just gets to be Captain America. Right. And the Hulk just gets to be the Hulk and it doesn't have to be... And the balance has to be perfect and because it if has it's to too be, much one right. way or the other, Then it becomes something else. Right. And that does come down to just because there are fewer black superhero films or there are fewer black films in general so then it there's it becomes this kind of weighted thing in that it has to answer to all of these communities and speak to all of these different things at the same time black panther in my opinion you know there absolutely can be criticisms of it and i think there should be because we should be approaching it as a piece of art in the way that we do every other film is you should engage with it critically and fairly. I do think that Black Panther kind of walks that line pretty admirably. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes back to this idea of like sometimes it's enough to just see yourself on screen. Right. Sometimes it's enough to just get to be the good guy. Sometimes it's enough to get to be Superman without then also having to sort of advance the movement at the same time, you know? And not to say that Black Panther doesn't. Black Panther raises some very interesting discussions and themes around the Black diaspora that the fact that that's fucking happening in a Marvel film is astonishing. So, you know... Luckily, we kind of got both with this one. Mm -hmm. And this is a film that does, it leads with its blackness. And it is, it celebrates its blackness. So yes, it is this corporate product, but it is being used by our community to sort of validate in some ways, to spark conversation and debate, and engages with the current world in a way that I don't think a lot of the Marvel films have done Mm -hmm. in the past. I mean, I do think anytime you have one of these big multi-million dollar tentpole movies, the Marvel movies, the Star Wars movies, there is, there's a certain formula they're going to follow. There are certain restraints they're going to have. They are only going to be able to do so much politically. They're only going to be able to, there's just, there's so many hoops they have to Mm -hmm. jump through. There are so many bean counters and marketing people and, you know, people protecting the franchise, protecting the corporation. I I don't know how anybody makes anything good out of that. So that to me, what Kugler was able to do within the parameters of that with Black Panther as far as raising all of these issues and as far as making it the celebration mm-hmm. of black culture that it is, that is amazing to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Would you say the same thing about Shaft? <laughs> I mean, Shaft is a fun movie starring a black protagonist. And I don't think, I think you were right. I don't think we get one without the other. Right. I think there is a through line. Yeah. From Gordon Parks to Ryan Coogler that's right. impossible to deny. But yeah, I mean, I th- I do think that the importance of having a black protagonist in and of itself is enough. It doesn't also have to be capital letter message film. It doesn't right. have to have, all, you know, it can just be, I want to see the black guy winning or I want to see the black woman winning. Okay, so important question. Sure. Who'd win in a fight? Between Shaft and Black Panther? Yeah. That is not even a question. <laughs> Shaft. Are you serious right now? <laughs> No. He is one bad mother. Shut your mouth. No, 
Absolutely not. I mean, I don't think we got into this earlier, but the fight scenes in Black Panther are amazing to me. The one-on-one sort of fight scenes yeah. are choreographed almost like dances. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sorry. Shaft is going to get his <laughs> ass kicked. It's just going to happen. It's, it just is. Be a good fight, though. I don't think it would. I think Shaft would go down pretty quick. I think it, it would be, you know, pretty much one and I mean, done. You know, Black Panther's bulletproof and right. he has claws and exactly. some tech that Shaft did not have access I to. I think T'Challa but... could kick John Shaft's ass. I don't think he would have to be Black Panther. I think T'Challa <laughs> could just go and kick Black Panther's ass. Now I feel like you're disrespecting John Shaft. I'm not disrespecting John Shaft at all. I'm really not. I'm not. He can go lick his wounds with his lady. <laughs> but no, he he would not beat Black Panther <laughs> at all. Okay. Anything else? No, I don't think so. But you liked it. You liked my movie. I did, yes. But see, I am open to I'm new al- movies. I am open to new movies. I don't go Yours into that expecting to, to hate terrible. them it, no. the way you do. No. <laughs> I'm totally open to the experience, but they are often terrible. Usually always terrible. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening to our experiment of putting Nikki in charge. The better experiment, I think. But next week, we are returning to our usual formula and returning to the original mission statement of the unenthusiastic critic, forcing Nikki to watch a film that nearly every other person on the planet has already seen. Mm. We're going to be watching Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. Isn't it like 12 hours long? It's it's not a short film. Mm-hmm. Besides, I think I have the trilogy pretty much down. You do? Yes. So somebody finds a horse head in their bed, uh, Fredo breaks someone's heart, and some woman is not supposed to ask some guy about his business. I'm not sure how they're going to stretch that out into three hours. No, that's the whole, that's the entire trilogy. Oh, that's the whole trilogy. So that's nine hours of film. That is nine hours of film. You just described the plot of nine hours of Godfather movies. Which is why it really doesn't need to be nine hours, but yes. Okay. Well, just for fun, let's go ahead and watch it anyway and see if there's any nuance that you might pick up. Probably not. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic. Email us at michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. As always, we encourage you to suggest a movie Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Or one Michael needs to see that stars Prince. No, we're, we're not going to be doing that. Please don't send me those emails. <laughs> Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner, Nakia, to movies they really, really don't want to watch. Well, next week we will return to our usual formula. No, I think we should. I think I should pick another movie. one. I think I should do another one. I think we need to watch the <laughs> Prince not, movie. I'm not watching Under the Cherry Moon. You gotta watch Under the Cherry no. Moon because then I can make the Rekka store joke with you, and you would get it. And you want to talk about who'd lose in a fight? We go, you know. Excuse me. I'm sorry. You think Prince could hold his own against either Shaft or Black Panther? Prince would end up being like the patron saint of Wakanda. He would be like, you know, he does all the concerts and all the official <laughs> parties and all the. Uh, so they, no, there wouldn't. Nobody fights Prince. You don't fight Prince. <laughs> no, you know we don't do that. He is a deity. You know the section was like the trees with the panthers in the trees. Mm-hmm. Prince would be in that's the tree with the panthers in the little magical place. That's that's where Prince would be. They should put him in the next movie. Maybe they can borrow you know Justin Timberlake's hologram. I will fucking cut you. <laughs> do not mention that boy's name when talking about Prince. Don't do it. Do not disrespect him. No. Mm-mm.